You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I am Kathy Biasa, your host and the producer of our show here on Radio Maria Canada is Alex Diaz. Today's show is being taped so no opportunity for calling in. This is part two of a two-part series with Dr. Astasha Gomenik and um, it is it is just a continuation of such great information that we received last week from her. Uh, but before we get to it, you can keep up to date and informed about our show by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also email us at thh at radiomaria.ca and please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub. It's one word on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And in doing so, each time we drop a a new podcast, uh, you'll be notified. So no work on your part. You can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. I'm really shortening our introduction today because, as I said, this is part two of our two-part series on sleep with Dr. Stasha Gomenik, and uh, we've dived, dived, we delved into many areas uh, in this second part as well, so lots of information for you. Um, please do listen to the first show that I did with Dr. Gomenik. It sort of sets the stage for what we're talking about today. Dr. Stasha Gomenik attended college in California and medical School at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, receiving her MD degree in 1983. She completed a neurology residency in 1989 at the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. From 1991 to 2004, she practiced as, as a general neurologist in the San Francisco Bay Area. In 2004, Dr. Gomenick moved with her husband to Tyler, Texas, and began to concentrate on treating neurological illness by improving sleep. She published a pivotal article in 2012 proposing that the global struggle with worsening sleep is linked to reduced sun exposure. In 2016, she followed with a second article linking the change in the intestinal microbiome to the epidemic of poor sleep and described a simple process for normalizing sleep and the intestinal bacteria population called sleep right. In 2016, she retired from office practice to have a more have more time to teach. She currently divides her time between teaching individuals through virtual coaching sessions and teaching clinicians from a wide variety of medical and dental fields. Her popular courses and lectures help clinicians improve their patients' health and well-being by improving their sleep. So we get into a lot of conversation here, a lot of topics that we, we do broach. Um, some of the learning points are why we sleep. Uh, setting up for a lifetime of good sleep starts with before we are actually born and how drilling down into the science of sleep often leads us back 
two quality lifestyle choices. So everybody, this is a wonderful continuation of our conversation. And I do hope you stay with us and we will be back in a few minutes to talk to Dr. Stasha Gomenik. Everybody's got a blank page, a story they're writing today, a wall that they're climbing. You can carry the past on your shoulders. You can start over regrets, no matter what you've gone through, Jesus. He gave it all to save you. He carried the cross on his shoulders, so you can start over. Don't let your heart be troubled, don't be afraid To the broken hearted, that wishes they Never been born, never been torn, never sinned, never disobeyed I know you think there's no hope, no, but that ain't true Jesus saved I know you feel a regret, like I brought this all on myself Like I messed it up big time and this time I don't deserve God's help Thinking, how can God forgive me? After knowing what I hid, can he? After knowing that I hid from him and I stayed away and backslid. Listen, Jesus came for the sick. So true. Jesus came for the weak. Amen. Jesus came to give good news and to set the captives free. Amen. Listen, Jesus came for the poor. Amen. Jesus came with the keys. Amen. Jesus came to remove the chains so the prisoners can be released. In the ocean floor, run to his arms like an open door. God the Father sent the Son, so men can come and be free and gotta run no more. Come to me, all who are weary. With heavy burdens, I'll give you rest. Separating you from your sin, as far as the east is from the west. Thrown in a sea of forgetfulness. What sin? What offense? And when them waves come crashing in, I'll calm the winds in your defense. So whatever it is that you've done, he put that punishment on his son. You'll never come under his condemnation, conquer sin and Satan in his accusations. So dry your eyes, lift up your head. His peace. his peace, and he took our guilt on a cross instead, took our place, and now we embrace a clean slate with the eyes of faith, we know, unfailing love, unfailing love, Everybody's it's not too late, start over. a story are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. 
Welcome back, everybody, and welcome, Stasha, back to our show. Uh, this is part two. This is the first time we've done a part two to um, with our guests, so uh, very happy to have you here. Um, I really don't want to rehash what we talked about in our interview from last week, so everyone go back and listen to that because it does lay the, uh, the, the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today. So we're back ending into, um, into sleep, and I think, Stasha, maybe now that we've kind of got major pieces is put together in the sleep uh, puzzle. Why is it important for us to sleep? Great question. That's the question of the decade for sure. Um, I think it's important to note that we think that all cells have a clock. So if you take a fat cell that we think of as worthless and something we want to get rid of, and you grow it in a petri dish, the fat cell knows when it's day and when it's night. And it does different things during the day than it does at night. It listens for different messages at night than it does during the day. It secretes different things during the day than it does at night. That means that even single-celled organisms, and maybe, I don't know this to be true, but maybe bacteria even have, so before we become multi-celled organisms, we have a active time and a rest time. And in concept, our whole brainstem sleep switch organization is to guarantee that we have a wake state where we're active and we have control over our body and our brain up here is controlling everything and we can do what we want to do. But we have then eight hours or a third of that 24 hour span where we don't have control over this part. This part then busily goes about its own business, which is of restocking the chemicals it needs and repairing and reattaching. And when you think about it a little bit, this would be the only way we could ever learn is you have to rewire. To learn something, you have to make new connections and you have to break old connections. And as we use our brain, it generates waste products and it wears out a little bit. So we have to repair it. As we repair our brain during sleep, we also repair our body during sleep and that appears to require paralysis of the moving parts. The next theory that comes after that is, well, does that mean if I don't get paralyzed correctly, my joints will wear out faster? Yes, that's what it means. That's why one of, one of my colleagues and friends who's in her 60s has a son who's 32 who's getting his hip replaced. He was a triathlete. It's not that being a triathlete wears out your hip. My hips are fine. There's 70, 80, 95 year olds walking around with their own hips. So we've learned how to replace hips. If the hips don't wear out, medicine doesn't learn how to do it. That means 32 year olds who are getting their hips replaced are usually not paralyzing their hip joints during sleep. That means they have a sleep disorder. That means that we can learn why we're still moving in sleep instead of becoming perfectly paralyzed. We have an avenue to explore that would mean our health would be so much better. So we sleep so we can keep on living. We're actually self-assembling. That's an extraordinary idea. We self-assemble. You know, we think of it as man and woman gets together and they make this little gamete that grows into a fetus. That's all happening spontaneously. We're not intervening there. It's true we can grow this fetus in a petri dish, but we're not really doing it. It's happening on its own. And that's the case for the rest of our body. And then we as physicians 
or scientists observe those processes and we try to get in there and muck around. But the miracle is still self-sustaining and self-repairing for years on end. The way we repair and keep living healthy is we have eight hours of normal sleep, including light sleep and deep sleep. Can you tell me why we go through these cycles of light sleep and very deep sleep and wake, sort of wake up and then paralysis? Is it in that moment of paralysis that that's when the key functions are kicking in to do the cleansing and repairing? And then why do we go out of it? Great questions. In fact, nobody really knows. And these are all conjectures, okay? The conjectures are built on what if I have 2,000 patients where I have sleep studies and they have one quarter or none of the deep sleep of these normals that we recorded in the 60s? What happens to them? In my beginning into this field was doing a bunch of sleep studies on young, healthy females who had daily headaches. And they didn't have REM. They didn't have rapid eye movement sleep. And we don't exactly know what we're doing in there, but it was pretty remarkable because nobody was writing about it. And they didn't have drops in oxygen. They didn't have apnea, they didn't stop breathing. And this is a brain function. So that led me down the path that we talked about in the last hour to finding out that vitamin D plays a role and that the B vitamins play a big role in it. And acetylcholine, which we're gonna talk about a little bit in this hour plays a role in being able to transition it between light sleep and deep sleep. If you don't have the right neurotransmitters, you won't be able to do those transitions. If you don't have the right uh, ratios of neurotransmitters, apparently you can't get paralyzed. So looking back saying, well, this is interesting. These young healthy females who have an otherwise completely normal life have knee pain or back pain or ankle pain, and they're getting their joints replaced really young. Does that mean these leg movements that we're seeing on these sleep studies are playing a role? If they don't paralyze their legs correctly, then they're using their legs all day and they're also moving them at a time when they should have been paralyzed to repair the joint space or repair the muscle or to repair the tendons. So these are conjectures, but ultimately it looks to me like one, we have light sleep where we do something else and the glymphatic system, which is only recently described where the glial cells, it's one the glial cells are one of the component cells of the brain, shrink. They make all this extra space and something pumps the cerebral spinal fluid around and it leaves the head. And we apparently do that and there are videos showing this amazing movement of fluid. So one, if the brain is filling up the whole skull, usually the soft squishy stuff, there's no room to create these rivers to wash the, the waste products away. Well, apparently these, these little cells become really small. They make this space in the head. It looks like that happens in light sleep preferentially. So you might picture it as in deep sleep, we get pro profoundly paralyzed. And then we do that for a brief period of time so that we won't hurt ourselves. One, we're very vulnerable during that time. Like if you're lying on the ground and you happen to be lying on one of your nerves and you cut off the blood supply of that nerve, you'll wake up and your leg will be tingly and then, oh, I just can't walk now. So there are physical accompaniments to being paralyzed and laying in one position for too long. That's true for every single animal on the planet. They all get paralyzed in deep sleep. 
So we get paralyzed, but we're vulnerable in that phase. Then we wake up. Apparently, we kind of look around a little bit. We may not be fully conscious, but we can listen. We may not open our eyes and have a bit, and we have no memory of this. Normal sleep, even in light sleep, we're not making memories of what's happening, but we're still alerting to our environment. And then we do this process of washing the brain. So perhaps what we're doing in deep sleep is then generating the refuse or the garbage of doing new stuff. And then we wash it away in light sleep. That's one suggestion. No one mm-hmm. actually knows that. Very interesting. Now, um, we're going to talk about sort of sleep throughout the ages and how we can lay the groundwork um, even before birth. But I do want to give you some space here to talk about the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, because we just, you know, you just had made that connection in, in, in the last interview, and it was it was just too big of a topic to talk about in, the, in, in our context of the last show. So can you go into more depth about your findings of acetylcholine and its connection to good sleep? The first thing to know is nobody knows about acetylcholine. No one cares about it. Nobody talks about it but it should be the chemical of the next 10 years. Um, And that is because it turns out there are multiple acetylcholine deficiency states that are being reported. Autism is one of them. ADHD is another. Alzheimer's is another. Early Parkinson's before they become dopamine deficient or acetylcholine deficient. There are many things in the literature now that are discussing the fact that we are in too high sympathetic tone. So this fight flight, we have measurements that we can do in all these different populations that have these different diseases and say, oh, we're in fight flight all the time. Well, that implies that acetylcholine, which is the parasympathetic neurotransmitter might be missing. So any place where you've seen autonomic dysfunction, like in the mom who's 32 driving her kids to school and she has a panic attack. Well, she goes in the ER and they give her Xanax and they say, you had a panic attack. She has an acetylcholine deficiency state. Anxiety turns out to be an acetylcholine deficiency state. When we named the autonomic nervous system two halves back in the 20s and 30s, sympathetic was called fight flight and epinephrine, norepinephrine are high. The parasympathetic side was called rest and digest. When we meditate, we turn up the parasympathetic side. That means the parasympathetic side, acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter that runs that, runs resting or being calm during the day, being less active, and it runs being focused. So there's all this primary frontal lobe literature showing that kids with ADHD have a deficiency of acetylcholine at nicotinic receptors in the frontal lobes And those researchers then add at their conclusion, we really shouldn't be giving them methamphetamine, which is what we usually use because that's an epinephrine analog. It looks like epinephrine or norepinephrine. We should really be using nicotine because that's the only drug we have. And you read those scientific articles and go, yeah, right. Like I want to convince my, you know, 32 year old mom with three kids to have their kids like smoke a cigarette at recess. It's not going to happen. More importantly, you don't really want to be using nicotine, but the important point in the background is the reason why we don't know about acetylcholine is because there are no drugs. The only drug we've ever had that was an acetylcholine 
mimicker is nicotine. And now that's been vilified. We used it at the very beginning of understanding nerves to say acetylcholine hits nicotinic receptors or muscarinic receptors at the nerve. The nicotinic receptors, we named them that because the nicotine activated those. And that's the way the neural system is organized for scientists talking about it now. That means we have no drugs. And it turns out that we doctors and scientists think in terms of the drugs we've developed to make this process happen. We have no drugs, but the interesting part that I stumbled into was when you lose your microbiome, you lose the bugs that make the B5 pantothenic acid that becomes coenzyme A that makes acetylcholine. That means you then become at risk for one of several acetylcholine deficiency states, depending on your genetic makeup and your age. So I can take what happened to me and my patients and say, this is weird. Like, why would their bugs be related to how their brain functions? This is one pathway that links those two. There are many others, but the B vitamins run all sorts of things in the neurotransmitters. Thiamine makes dopamine and acetylcholine. B6 makes <clears throat> dopamine. That means all of the B vitamins have always played a huge role in the neurotransmitters that make our brain function normally and that make our brain develop normally. And we now have a little bit of evidence that suggests the microbiome makes the raw materials, the building blocks that become the endocannabinoid system. Another system that because we vilified marijuana, scientists have been really delayed in studying, but the endocannabinoid system plays a huge role in the development of the human brain in utero and during early childhood that's just starting to be shown to be true. And a lot of the chronic pain states are states where the endocannabinoid system and the B vitamins are both really deficient. So this is spread across our population and we didn't recognize it. The acetylcholine is linked to many of the diseases we're seeing increasing. I wanna give you a way of thinking about this. I was, I'm, I'm reading a book right now that's going back into the 1600s. What we do as humans is we look around to all the diseases that are around us. So we think that, oh, being sensitive to dairy and gluten is just a normal part of life. We think that kids who don't sleep and run around and are crazy and don't listen to their parents and can't follow commands and wake up in the middle of the night are normal. They're not, those are not normal states. Now in the past, we died of things like scarlet fever or a typhoid or yellow fever or epidemic diseases that we've actually gotten rid of by killing the mosquitoes, killing the vector, or by immunizing. And those were killer diseases. We would have been talking about them. They would have killed our family members. So uh, over a hundred years ago, it would not be uncommon for half of your family to die during these epidemics. We're seeing a tiny little bit of that now. COVID is nothing like the epidemics we had in the past. Those were infectious diseases that killed humans in huge numbers. Mm -hmm. What we're looking at now is a different thing. We're looking at an epidemic of a deficiency state, which is fascinating and not what we expected. And when the doctors kind of tried to shrug their way out of the responsibility for vitamins, which happened in the 1980s, and in the 80s is when we started to use sunscreen and move indoors. So a deficiency state that was linked to D deficiency from not being out in the sun started to slowly creep up starting in the 80s 
At the same time, we started to lose interest in that. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're paying attention to the things that are common now. Um, that doesn't mean that medicine hasn't accomplished amazing things. Being able to replace a hip joint, being able to make uh, you know, artificial insemination, those are remarkable things. Um, but at the moment, what most of us want is to feel better or to feel the best we can. And that at the moment, frankly, turns out to be about sleep and vitamin deficiency states. It's, a it's hard to drill your, uh, yourself into that without a good historical context in my, in my view. Well, I think we're so used to having a pill to fix things that we don't have the necessity to go back and look at the biological functionings of everything. Um, okay, so now again, I've got about 45 questions I want to start with. What I'm going to do is go to break. And then when we come back, we're going to continue this. Maybe we'll talk about this stress path. And I really want to get into how our sleep can change within a normal spectrum as we age. So everybody, we will be back in a minute. So 
You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Stasha Gomenik. Stasha, um, you talked about um, looking back and trying to make connections about why we're in deficiency states and so forth. And if we look over um, as we age and how our sleep changes, uh, I think it's inbred in us that sleep changes because we age. Now, you brought up a very interesting piece about acetylcholine and stress, and there's no question that as we age, the stressors of life um, add on to uh, add on to us. We, we, we accumulate more. As a child, we don't have a lot of the stressors. Um, is this a big piece of the sleeping puzzle as we do age? Or I'm just making a, an error, a connection. And can we kind of go over the biology of how sleep does actually change from, you know, when a baby is born, growing up into adulthood? Well, I have to start off by saying I don't believe uh, the dogma that you just described, that is the current idea set. Mm-hmm. Old people don't need to sleep as much. I think that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm an old person now. Uh, that means it Even really more than is need to sleep. you start to age when you stop sleeping normally. So there are 90-year-olds on the planet who still sleep normally, who still use all their joints, and whose mind is intact. If you think of that as an example and you say, what's the one thing that they all share? When we go back into longevity, we're looking at diets. Well, the diets that they're looking at are like the Mediterranean diet, where they happen to live, where they live outside all the time. So when they live outside and they walk up and down mountains because they live in Sicily or they walk up and down those really steep hills in their town, they're exercising and they're exercising outdoors. So there are things and they're growing their own garden. So there are things that are around the diet that are also contributing. So it is is my belief that when we stop sleeping, we start aging. That means your child who's two, who's never slept through the night, is not going to live to be 40 years old. That 32-year-old that just got their hip replaced, that kid hasn't slept normally since he was born. It takes a long time. The brain is really designed to keep trying to fix things even when you don't give it all it needs, even if it doesn't get into deep sleep. So it is my claim that these degenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's only start chipping away at us once the D goes low and we lose our microbiome. If that never happens to you, you get to live to be 90. Now, we all die of something eventually. So there will be a genetically linked timeline because dogs do this exact same thing. I watch my dogs get D deficient and start acting out their dreams and running during sleep, but they do it in a shorter timeline. So we actually start seeing that in them at age eight. You know, we're seeing the same things that happen in humans in dogs in a really accelerated timeline. And we've taken out all the infectious diseases that would have killed our pets. So they no longer die of heartworm. They instead get the diseases that we get, breast cancer, epilepsy, uh, diabetes, and then we treat it, okay? And we go, oh, they have diabetes. Like, you know, dogs didn't get diabetes before. They would die after they had three, a female will have three litters and they die of heartworm. They'd be like three years old. 
So <clears throat> the same for humans. So back to your original question, what we've said is old people don't need to sleep as much. No, that's not true. What we've seen is they sleep less and less. And in fact, they start having a sleep disorder first. Then they start to have other signs of aging. And the two kinds of sleep disorders are either I can't sleep, so grandma's up all night walking around sleeping on the couch, or they fall asleep while you're talking to them, which is also a sleep disorder. So if you live long enough to have a normal life up to, let's say, age 60, and then you start manifesting a sleep disorder, soon after that come other medical problems. So what I would present as the ideal that we've gotten to see in my lifespan is the people who live between 1940 and 1980 who were still farming with a, with a plow and a, a mule at the beginning and then with a tractor with no cover and absolutely no air conditioning, who lived outside, who raised all their food, canned their food. They did not have a perfect diet. They ate whatever the heck they could get their hands on because they didn't have anyone coming and giving them food. There was no grocery store. So they canned their food, they boiled it to death so they didn't die of botulism. And they lived pretty healthy and thin until their 70s. And then they started to have the same problems we have now. Then they had hypertension, their cholesterol went up and then they stopped sleeping. And then they had a stroke. So they lived a healthy life to age 70 and then died from 70 to 85. Their dying span was much shorter. They didn't see the doctor until they were 70 and they didn't take any vitamins either. And I, I'm saying this based on my husband's family who lives very near to us in South Oklahoma and, you know, actual people who I say to them, look, you just had a stroke and maybe I want to try vitamin D and all. And they're like, I never took a vitamin in my life. And they've never really been sick. You know, they had occasional colds. If that is one of the examples that we have, then you can see the potential in a slightly different way. You can say, okay, well, I don't really want to live to be 100, to be truthful. I don't want to see, you know, my relatives die and live past them. But I really like to be healthy during the time that I'm living. And if I can do that for 85 years instead of dying for 85 years, watching my kids have things replaced and horrible diseases like heart failure and being told that they're going to have to have a heart transplant, I would like to be able to intervene there. So I would like to challenge those sleep scientists who are studying this to say, maybe you should go back and look at this within the lens of what is their D level? We have scientific experiments that show D is a major player in allowing the sleep switches to do their work. What are their acetylcholine levels? And again, these are things that are really, we're on the leading edge of this. We have no way to, there's only a few labs in the world that measure CSF levels of things like acetylcholine. And those are, those are in the fluid, they're not in the cell. So the way that we've thought about how to access these things, even the vitamin D blood levels, are a lot of questions about that. The blood level has nothing to do with what's happening in the head. It's a different compartment. So I would say that the, the true path for the future is saying, is that observation that old people sleep less really genetically programmed? There's a genetic program that means our D starts to drop as we get into our 70s, even if we spend exactly the same amount of time in the sun. So we use those populations that I talked about as an example. They're doing exactly the same thing they've been doing for 70 years. They're going their, their food outside. They're still living an outside life, but their D production is going down. If we start to intervene in that, which is going to be 
probably a bad idea, but we probably will. Then we're going to start to change our biology in some kind of creepy ways too. So stepping back, I would still say, I would think most of us want to be able to use our bodies to the maximum in a very healthy way, which eventually means we must sleep normally. That means we have to have eight hours, four hours of deep sleep, two of slow wave sleep, two of REM sleep. Our path in sleep study as clinicians and as scientists should be to ensure that all of our people are sleeping like that, that they're repairing to their maximum. And then we get to see whether or not, when and whether old people really do sleep differently. Well, go to the other end of the the age spectrum then. Can um, sleep patterns, can sleep regulation be dabbled in in the womb? Can mom contribute to How is that done? So first thing to know is it is my belief that the, and there is very good scientific evidence that D deficiency is running most of the complications of infertility. Most of the infertility in this country could be easily avoided by just getting vitamin D, getting your microbiome back. So one, D is directly related to ovulation. We have all the intermediary steps there. It's designed that way so that when your D is low, there is no food because the sun isn't there. That means if you have a baby, when there is no food, the baby dies. So there are aspects to how this affects all animals. All animals are run by this hormone, establishing their metabolism and their fertility. So they will be more successful attaching themselves to the planetary seasons of where they end up being. So it's affecting us. We tend to think of ourselves as the most important animals on the planet, but this is affecting all animals. That means our infertility over the last 40 years is directly related to D levels. Premature delivery, the reason why we're so good at neonatology is the babies are being delivered earlier than 40 weeks. Direct relationship to D, D covers the placenta. The placenta is all about protecting that baby from mom's immune system. We have good science that shows eclampsia is directly related to the D level. All of the malformations that happen in the very early development in the first eight weeks of cleft lip, cleft palate, fusion of the spinal cord, meningomyelocele, those are all B vitamin deficiency states. We've known that for years. That means if all the moms in the planet have a D level over 40, it doesn't even have to be 60 to 80, like what I talk about for better sleep. There's documented evidence that shows we get the D level into the 40s, maybe low 50s, You'll have an easy pregnancy without low back pain, leg swelling, hypertension, all the milder things that happen in pregnancy. They're all D deficiency states. The second piece is that the mom who's had D deficiency also has a microbiome that's wrong. That microbiome is supplying her with eight B vitamins. That means if her microbiome is wrong during her pregnancy, her baby is trying to develop without the basic building blocks of development. That means starting at the very beginning of the two and three and eight and 22 cell phase, the baby doesn't have the raw material. So that's why we use prenatal vitamins. And you know what? Nobody pays any attention to what's in the prenatal vitamins. A lot of them don't have all eight. So they are not mimicking what the normal microbiome would make to provide a normal blood environment for that developing fetus to have all the developmental pieces it needs. 
That means autism is developing in the womb in that baby's brain. We now have evidence that suggests that mom can make antibodies to the baby's brain. They should never be allowed in there. That means there's a part of the deep protection at the placenta that's breaking down, that's allowing babies to develop with their mom attacking the brain of the fetus. At, and to go back to your original question, at 30 weeks in a normal developmental scale of an infant, the infant in utero is starting to sleep. And the infant or the fetus, depending on how you look at it, at 30 weeks, we keep kids alive, born at 30 weeks all the time now. So let's say it's an infant. That infant starts to have a sleep-wake cycle that parallels the mom. So I get to see in my clients, they have a good D level of over 60. They have normal microbiome. Their baby starts to quiet when they go to bed, starting in 30 weeks. So the last 10 weeks in the pregnancy, the baby's asleep when the mom is asleep and the baby wakes up when the mom wakes up. That's well documented. We don't see it anymore because moms don't have the right makeup to make the developing brain of the fetus sleep normally. And when that baby is born, so my clients have babies that start sleeping through the night at age three to six months, which is never seen now. Okay, that's the normal setup for babies. Babies are supposed to sleep for 12 or more hours because that's how they develop. That means all the sleep disorders that we are considering to be normal in childhood now, you have a colicky baby. That's a bad answer. That's a baby who's going to develop bad things. Baby who's baby who doesn't sleep, that's not going to be good for that baby over time. That's an early sign that, uh-oh, mom doesn't have the amount of D to press in the breast milk. So our current way of dealing with this is to say, we have to supplement infants with vitamin D. Well, we say they can't go out in the sun, which is insane. And so we have to supplement. Well, I'm sorry, humans have breastfed their infants and gotten them into adulthood in that same population I was telling you between 1940 and 1980, they could have 10 kids who live to adulthood. That means that woman had enough D to give her baby D and they slept normally or they wouldn't go into the healthy adults that were basically working on the farm. That means that that infant is not getting enough D from the mom. When you get the D up in the mom to be 60. So I have a whole set of videos about how to use this right sleep program, the knowledge that we've gained in this special setting, how to use it to be fertile, how to use it when you're pregnant, how to use it when your baby's breastfeeding in the first year. Because you really don't want to be doing anything to the infant. You want to be giving it to the mom, making sure the mom's in the right state, and then the infant's will follow because that's the way it naturally always has been. So if you have an infant that sleeps through the night, you're pretty much guaranteed to have a normal brain development in that infant because that is required. If the baby has enough D to establish a normal microbiome, what we know is you can establish a normal human microbiome by age three months, just with breast milk if you live outdoors. So the D level either has to be high enough in the mom that she passes her D to the infant, D is a trophic factor or a growth factor that's required by the normal microbiome. So all these kids that have ADD, don't sleep, have autism, all have a wrong microbiome. It's not that hard to bring it back. <clears throat> it's not a simple undertaking in an autistic kid who already has behavioral issues. <clears throat> these B vitamins and bringing the microbiome back is, is tough to do in somebody who already has a brain that's not actually able 
to take in the B vitamins in the same doses as another kid. So I'm not, not claiming that this is simple or easy to do. I'm saying it's absolutely possible. And more importantly, we could prevent it all just by getting mom's D and her microbiome back before she gets pregnant, or at least establishing it while she is pregnant and keeping the D level up and making sure that the kid's microbiome is normally established, keeping the kid's D above 40 after that, you can avoid all these problems easily. Very interesting. And just before we come to the end of the show, a, a mom who, a pregnant mom, uh, would you recommend her having her D levels tested much more frequently than um, a person who's not pregnant? Does the baby, does the baby uh, take the D from the mom? So uh, is it easier for a mom to go into deficiency while pregnant? There's a concise way yeah. to put it. In fact, there's a whole set of medicine that's about what do women look, I started this whole path with the sleep with young, healthy females who the only thing they've done is have a couple kids. They run every day. They work out. They're a triathlete. Yet now they have daily headache. And all they did was have a couple kids. Every single kid, if you start with a D deficient population, so if you're able to get pregnant and your D is in the 40s, and then you have another kid and you don't go out in the sun because everybody's told you it's bad for you, <clears throat> you have to get your D up high enough to get pregnant again the second time. But by the end of the second pregnancy, and this is different for each woman, but there's a whole set of complaints that happen. One, we get fat. We get fat after the second kid. Why? And they all say, I'm doing the same things I did after the second pregnancy or after the first pregnancy or before I got pregnant and I can't lose weight. Their microbiome is gone. <clears throat> they now have a bacterial makeup that makes the calories we put into fat. So the things that we see happen, we can look at a woman who just had her third kid and go, she doesn't look that good, okay? Yes, it's true she's sleep deprived. And she has another factor, which is the first two kids weren't quite right and they never slept through the night. So she has sleep deprivation and she has these vitamin deficiencies. <clears throat> but ultimately, if we pay attention to this before pregnancy or during pregnancy, we can avoid most of these things. We can actually treat them also. But having those pregnancies is why women in this current age group look like they age group. They age faster. They are aging faster. And, it's, and they don't, it took me a long time to realize they don't come in and say, you know, I'm really tired. They're seeing me for daily headache. And they have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They don't come in and say, you know, I'm really tired because they know what I'm going to say. Well, you have two little kids. They're waking up all the time. They're driving you nuts. So no surprise you can't sleep. But, but it is a surprise because for humans to thrive, those babies were supposed to fall asleep and stay asleep for 12 hours. That's what they were doing in the past. So that means it shouldn't be the normal state to be horribly sleep deprived by the time you've had two kids. It was normal to be able to have 10 kids. That's like unthinkable now. There we go so, back to that. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's right. Exactly. Uh, I think that's kind of where we started off in part one of our show. It, again, such an interesting interview with you. So much more on the table we could discuss, but we're right up against the clock here. So I wanted to thank you for coming back. Uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you for the last two weeks, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to educate us. Kathy, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub.
You have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.